The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is in Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. May God bless the reading of his word. Donna, let's pray. Father, we pray according to Isaiah 55, that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so would your word be this morning that it would not return to you empty, but would accomplish that which you purpose, Lord, and succeed in the thing for which you send it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are many ways in which our society has changed over the past 50 or 60 years, but perhaps none of them has been as significant or as revolutionary in, uh, as the change in the way our society views marriage. It's uh, pretty astounding uh, when you think about it. For pretty much all of history, you know, before the present era, there's been a virtually universal understanding of marriage as a lifelong and exclusive covenant between a man and a woman. However, in Recent years, our society has obviously deviated from that understanding and now views marriage in a much different way. And the reason this change is so significant is because marriage is, in many ways, the foundation of a society, right? The bedrock of any healthy society is a healthy approach to marriage. And our society is... No exception. Uh, I mean, if you want to know why our society is currently plagued by so many social ills, 
Well, I believe a lot of them, at least, can be traced back to the breakdown of the traditional understanding of marriage and family. But the Bible shows us a better way. And that better way begins with understanding the foundational teachings of our main passage here in Genesis 2. Right after God created the world, including man, we read in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And that statement right there uh, represents the beginning of the institution that we now know as marriage. In this verse, God determines to give the man an incredible gift, the gift of a woman to be his wife. So from the very outset here, we see marriage as a gift that comes to us directly from God, right? We didn't invent it. We don't own the copyright or the patent for it. No, it comes to us as a gift from God himself. And thankfully, God not only gave us the gift of marriage, but also what we might call an owner's manual to go along with it. And uh, that owner's manual is critical for us to have. Like, imagine that someone gave you the gift of, let's say, a Lamborghini, right? That would be nice. Uh, however, you, you can't treat that Lamborghini the same way you would treat maybe the, the Chevy that's in your driveway, right? There are specific procedures that are involved in maintaining a Lamborghini that most of us who have never owned a car like that really aren't very familiar with. And so just take oil changes as an example. Right? I learned not too long ago that it, the average cost for an oil change on a Lamborghini is over $1,000, and that it takes over three and a half hours for a qualified technician to perform. So hopefully your friend, who was nice enough to give you the Lamborghini, was also nice enough to give you a pile of cash to maintain it, because there's a little bit more that's involved than with the Chevy. And so even if you've owned and maintained numerous cars before, you still need to read the owner's manual for that Lamborghini, right? If you don't, well, things probably aren't going to go very well for you. And similarly, God's given us not only the gift of marriage, but also an owner's manual to go along with it. That owner's manual, of course, is the Bible. And as we'll see, our main passage here in Genesis 2 is kind of like the table of contents for that owner's manual. It gives us a preliminary idea of the general concepts that we need to be aware of in order to approach marriage as God intends us to approach it. And so in light of that, our main idea this morning is actually the same as it was last week, this week being part two of last week's message, changing metaphors slightly from an owner's manual to a blueprint, we might say that in Genesis 2, 18 through 25, God lays out a blueprint for human flourishing in his creation of one man and one woman to live together in a lifelong covenant relationship. Again, if you're taking notes, God lays out a blueprint for human flourishing in his creation of one man and one woman to live together in a lifelong covenant relationship. And this week, we'll explore 
more of what that relationship looks like. So how should a husband and wife relate to each other? What does it look like for a marriage to be healthy and functioning as God intended for it to function? Our first clue comes in the the verse we just read, verse 18. God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. That Hebrew word translated as helper refers to someone who supplies strength and assistance in an area that's lacking in the one being helped. Uh, Helper isn't in any way a demeaning term and uh, has no implications that the helper is either stronger or weaker than the one who's being helped. In fact, God himself is often referred to as Israel's helper, employing this same Hebrew term in passages like Exodus 18.4, Deuteronomy 33.7, 1 Samuel 7.12, and Psalm 46.1. So clearly, a helper isn't in any way inferior, but is simply, well, one who provides help and uh, who does what the one who's being helped would otherwise find difficult or impossible to do on their own. And that's the function that a woman, the the woman here in Genesis 2, has for the man. God then goes on to describe this helper as one who is fit for him. That is, one who matches the man and serves not as a clone of the man, but rather as an appropriate counterpart or complement to the man. So the critical thing for us to understand uh, from all of this is that the man and woman, as husband and wife, have certain distinct roles in that relationship. And these roles are present even before what's often called the fall in Genesis 3, where humanity rebelled against God and thereby plunged the entire created order into ruin and dysfunction and brokenness. So gender roles predate the fall and were part of God's original good creation. And in God's plan for these gender roles, the husband lovingly leads while the wife affirms, receives, and follows his leadership within biblical parameters. So that's key. The husband lovingly leads while the wife affirms, receives, and follows his leadership within biblical parameters. Uh, One indication of this comes as we move further along in our main passage. In in Genesis 2, 19 and 20, we see Adam acting as God's representative and giving names to all of the animals. And in the Old Testament, having the right to name something indicated that you had a authority over um, that creature. So we we see this today, right, with parents obviously naming their children, right? That is an act of authority, to name something. And so further down, look what we see happening in verses 22 and 23. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam names this marvelous new creature 
that God has created, calling her woman, and thereby in the act of naming her shows that he has authority there. We can also see the man's role as leader in the surrounding context of our main passage in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. To whom does God direct his command not to eat from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? He directs it to the man with the assumption that it would also apply to all who were under the man's authority. So God didn't need to command the woman not to eat from the tree since his command to the man was sufficient for the woman as well. And then in the next chapter, Genesis 3, 9 through 11, who does God confront first about the sin that had taken place? Well, again, he goes straight to the man as the leader in that relationship. Also, as we look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul clearly states that humanity is counted sinful because of the sin of who? It's Adam, the man, without even mentioning the sin of Eve, the woman, right? Uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that it's in Adam that all die. And also states in Romans 5, 15, that many die through the one man's trespass. Now think about that. Even though Eve is the one who sinned first, it's still the man who was the representative there of the human race. Now, before we go any further, we need to be clear that both the man and woman of Genesis 2, as well as in all subsequent generations, are equal in value and dignity and worth. First of all, Genesis 1.27 clearly states that both the man and woman were created in the image of God. Both of them bear God's image to an equal degree. Also, I believe it's significant that in Genesis 2, 21 and 22, God forms the woman from the rib of the man. The woman wasn't formed from the man's head, as if to indicate that she was above him, nor was she formed from the man's foot, as if to indicate that she is beneath him. Rather, she was formed from the man's side, indicating that she was and is his equal. Yet the Bible is clear that although men and women are equal in worth, God's design, again, is nevertheless for the husband to be the leader in that relationship. Uh, this is even more clearly stated in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, where Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, obviously, this isn't on the list of the most uh, politically correct passages in the Bible. Uh, but, you know, the way I see it, maybe there are some of you who struggle with this. The way I see it is if God really is infinitely beyond us in terms of his wisdom, then we should expect to have difficulty at times understanding all of the reasoning behind his instructions for us. Uh, you know, personally, I know that my kids often don't understand all of my reasoning behind the things I tell them. But I'm pretty sure my reasons are still darn good ones, right? I just know better than they do. 
And similarly, I think gender roles are an area where we just need to trust God, that he gives us these instructions for our own good and to promote our own welfare. And notice the analogy Paul gives in these verses. Uh, At the end of verse 22, he explains that the wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Right? Um, So wives should submit to their husbands in a way that mirrors, it's at least similar to the way Christians submit to Jesus. I believe that would be willingly, lovingly, respectfully, and with trust in the husband's godly leadership. And just as Christ is the head of the church, the husband, Paul says, is the head of his wife. And that word head, of course, implying a position of authority. Now, an important caveat here, wives are certainly not required to follow their husbands into sin. At any time, a husband attempts to lead his wife in a direction that's plainly unbiblical, it is not only the wife's right, but indeed her duty to refuse to follow his leadership in that area. We can see this in Acts 5.29, where the apostles say to an authority in their lives, to the governing authorities who had told them to stop spreading the gospel, they say, we must obey God rather than men. But in other situations where the husband isn't seeking to lead his wife into sin, the wife should follow his leadership. And as we seek to put these two ideas together, that the husbands and wives are equal in worth and yet different in their roles and functions, uh, perhaps it it might be helpful to compare it to something a little more concrete. Uh, Let's say maybe the difference between motorcycles and dirt bikes, right? It's not that the motorcycle is better than the dirt bike or that the dirt bike is better than the motorcycle, but simply that the two of them have different functions, right? They're made for two different kinds of terrain and function the best when they are driven on the terrain that each of them is designed for. So they're equal in value, but different in function. Or, even better, think about the relationship between Jesus and God the Father. Jesus is just as divine and just as important as God the Father and shares all of the Father's attributes, yet functionally, Jesus submits to the Father's authority and follows the Father's leadership. And so wives are no more inferior to their husbands than Jesus is inferior to God the Father, which, of course, he's not. Now, because of the fall recorded in Genesis 3, there are two ways in which husbands and wives often function contrary to God's design. We might call these feminism and chauvinism. Feminism, uh, very loosely defined, is when the wife refuses to follow the godly leadership of her husband. And the Bible actually gets very specific about how this tendency has its roots in the fall. In Genesis 3.16, God pronounces a curse on Eve because of her sin. Uh, The text states, To the woman he said, 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. When God says there, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, he's talking about a desire to usurp her husband's authority. That's feminism. Then the roots of chauvinism are described in the very next part of the sentence. He shall rule over you. That word rule in this context refers to the husband sinfully seeking to rule over his wife in a domineering and tyrannical way, acting like a king rather than a servant leader. And so there we see the roots both of the feminism that currently characterizes our our era here in America, as well as the chauvinism that's been dominant throughout so much of the rest of history. But it's important to note that both feminism and chauvinism fall tragically short of God's design. God's design is for something else entirely. It's a breathtakingly beautiful design that promotes human flourishing exponentially more than any human distortion of that design could ever do. This design, again, is for the husband to lovingly lead his wife and also provide for his wife and protect his wife and for the wife to affirm, receive, and follow the godly leadership of her husband. And that model, by the way, leaves plenty of room for the wife to be an active participant in the family's decision-making process. She absolutely should be. But wives should nevertheless be on their guard uh, against the tendency, tracing back to Genesis 3, to, uh, I guess you could say, wear the pants in the relationship and seek to undermine the leadership of their husbands. Uh, This includes the wife competing with her husband for control of the family, talking disrespectfully about her husband behind her husband's back, doing things that she knows her husband wouldn't approve of without his knowledge, and employing various forms of manipulation. These are all tendencies that stem from Genesis 3. And as for husbands, you didn't think we were going to forget about you, did you? Well, we have some pretty challenging instructions as well, to say the least. Not only should husbands resist the domineering tendencies that they inherit from Genesis 3, but they also have the responsibility to love their wives in a truly sacrificial and Christ-like manner. Looking again at Ephesians 5, let's read what Paul instructs husbands to do, right? He's just instructed wives to submit to their husbands, but he gives husbands what I'd say is an even greater challenge. He says in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. That's pretty radical. You see, Jesus loved us even when we were in a downright wretched condition. We were rebellious unlovely, undeserving, and even condemned in our sins. Yet even when we were in that condition, this text says, Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. He did that by becoming a human and 
voluntarily allowing himself to be crucified on the cross to pay for our sin. That's where we see the true depth of his love. And in that act, Jesus endured not only the physical agony of crucifixion, but even the full measure of the undiluted judgment of God against sin so that we wouldn't have to face that. You see, our sin had to be dealt with. Justice had to be upheld. But Jesus acted as our substitute on the cross and thereby evened out the scales of divine justice. Then three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their total trust and confidence in him. By the way, even you, this morning, he will do that for you. And just like Jesus demonstrated sacrificial love toward us, he calls husbands to demonstrate sacrificial love toward their wives. So that's a lot different than the chauvinistic way in which husbands have often treated their wives down through the centuries. It's a lot different than husbands treating their wives like their own personal property or like their servants to be ordered around and intimidated and casually dismissed. Yet even though this kind of chauvinism undoubtedly still continues today, uh, I think there's actually an even more common way in which many husbands fail to love their wives, as Ephesians 5.25 instructs us. So historically, it might have been chauvinism, but I'm convinced today, in many cases, it's actually the opposite, what we might call abdication, where the husband simply abdicates his role or is passive in the marital relationship. So maybe he's selfishly absorbed in his own uh, recreation, and his own fun, much like, I guess, an overgrown teenager, right? Just playing his video games and going out with the guys and just doing a lot of other things like that way too much. And when he is interacting with his family, he's not really much of a leader. His wife often finds herself having to act more like his mother, picking up after him and, and making sure he makes responsible decisions. And kind of like on that, that sitcom from way back when, Everybody Loves Raymond. Right? We used to watch that a lot growing up, and I thought it was great at the time, but looking back, I'm like, I can't figure out why everyone did love Raymond so much, because the guy was a clueless and childish moron who abdicated his responsibilities. Yet that's not the only personality profile of a husband who abdicates his responsibilities. There are also other husbands who don't act the way Ray Barone acted. In fact, they're often highly organized and responsible and driven, but they're still abdicating their role in the family because they're so wrapped up in their work that they're not emotionally present or engaged with their family. Now, of course, as we talked about a few weeks ago, a good work ethic is very honorable and commendable. But there's a difference between having a good work ethic and being married to your work. So a husband with a good work ethic is doing a very loving thing by providing for his family, but a husband who's married to his work 
might say he's just trying to provide, but in reality, he's not providing something his family needs just as much as his paycheck. And that would be his emotional presence and engagement and leadership. So, men, you've got you've to put forth effort and intentionality to be engaged at home. Right? It's not going to happen accidentally. No husband is going to look back one day over the past you know, 20 years of his marriage and be like, wow, you know, I just kind of accidentally stumbled into being this amazing husband and father these past two decades, right? That's not going to happen. You have to put forth deliberate effort to be faithful in that way. And that's an essential part of what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Then returning to our main passage in Genesis 2, we get a climactic picture of this beautiful union between husband and wife in verse 24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now that term, hold fast, is used in numerous other places uh, throughout the Old Testament for practicing covenant faithfulness. A covenant is simply a sacred agreement between two parties. And in this particular covenant, the covenant of marriage, we're told that the husband needs to hold fast to his wife. And that's why, in the main idea, I refer to God's blueprint for human flourishing involving a what I called a lifelong covenant relationship between husbands and wives. So divorce shouldn't even be a word in their vocabulary. And not only does this command for the husband to hold fast to his wife prohibit divorce, it also prohibits every other form of unfaithfulness to the marital covenant. Uh, As I mentioned last week, that includes adultery, fornication, lust, pornography, and all homosexual behavior. So if you want to learn more about any of those prohibitions, again, just go back and listen to the sermon from last week. But the point is that all sexual activity outside of this lifelong covenant of marriage is sinful and contrary to God's design. And as you're sitting there listening to all of this, there may be some who are wondering, you know, why does God care so much about this? You know, why is it such a big deal? Why does he care so much about who we have sex with? Why is he so insistent that we only enjoy this gift of sex within the bounds of monogamous heterosexual marriage? And uh, those are understandable questions, um, especially considering uh, how radically different these ideas are in the Bible from the, the current prevailing mindset in our society. And I'd say, first of all, well, like I said, that this is the design that promotes human flourishing, like we already talked about with the owner's manual. However, there's an even higher reason as well. And we find that reason by going back once again to Ephesians 5. After telling husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church, he goes even further than that. 
And one might assume that he's simply using the gospel message of Christ's love for the church as an illustration of what a healthy marriage looks like. But it's actually the other way around. The gospel isn't just a convenient illustration of a healthy marriage. No, marriage was actually created by God for the specific purpose of illustrating the gospel. In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul references our main passage and writes, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Genesis 2.24 that Paul quotes here is actually a verse that is ultimately about the gospel. Paul says it refers to Christ and the church. And that's why guarding and preserving the covenant of marriage by avoiding sexual immorality is such a big deal. It's because when marriage is marred, that picture of the gospel is marred. So imagine how you would feel if you discovered that someone you know had been uh, misrepresenting you by spreading vicious rumors about you to, to people you know, friends and coworkers and fellow church members, right, saying horrific things about you that weren't true at all. Well, I imagine you would be pretty upset, right? In fact, you would probably be livid. How dare they? misrepresent who you are by fabricating those lies. Yet whenever we misuse God's gift of sex, we are misrepresenting him. We're in effect saying that God doesn't love his people with a love that's steadfast, sacrificial, committed, and covenantal. Instead, we're saying that he merely loves us when it's convenient for him to do so. Or even worse, that he merely uses us for his own pleasure without truly caring for us. So whether we intend to say that or not, that's the statement we're making whenever we engage in sexual immorality. Whenever we treat sex as a cheap, throwaway thing, we're making the statement that God's love in the gospel is a cheap, throwaway thing as well. So in a sense, any form of sexual immorality is actually a form of blasphemy. We're blaspheming God's name, which means that we're treating his name with utter contempt through our immorality. However, the reverse is also true. As we embrace God's design for marriage and sexuality that we see in Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 and many other places throughout the Bible... We can present this world with a powerful picture of the gospel. And, of course, uh, keeping ourselves from immorality is just the beginning of, of us doing that. In order to present this world with a compelling picture of Christ's love for us in the gospel and of the relationship that he desires to have with his people, then we have to pursue marriages that are faithful to God's design in every way including the unique roles and responsibilities for husbands and wives that we've discussed 
this morning. It's only within that established pattern of the way husbands and wives should relate to each other that we can show this world what true marital love looks like. Again, that means the husband lovingly leading, protecting, and providing for his wife and the wife affirming, receiving, and following the godly leadership of her husband. It's not feminism. It's not chauvinism. It's an entirely different way, a beautiful design given to us by God for marriage in the pages of Scripture. And let me conclude by reading to you this description of a man and a woman figure skating together in the Olympics a few years ago. It says this, He leads her onto the ice and initiates each part of their routine. She receives that leadership and trusts in his strength. His raw physical strength is more on display than hers. He does all the lifting, twirling, and catching. She compliments his strength with her own, a more attractive strength of beauty, grace, speed, and balance. His focus as the head or leader is on magnifying her skills. Her focus is on following his lead and signaling her readiness to receive his next move. He takes responsibility for the two of them, and she trusts his leadership and delights in it. If he makes a mistake, she pays the larger physical price, he pays the larger emotional price. She falls, but he fails. So he has to learn to initiate and risk. She has to help him understand her moves and to endure his learning curve. They do not fight for equality on the ice. They possess it as a given. They're not jostling about fairness. They are focused on doing their part well. No one in the audience yells, oppressor, as he leads her around the arena, lifting her up and catapulting her into a triple spin. No one thinks she's belittled as she takes her lead from him, skating backwards to his forward. They complement each other, becoming one majestic whole. No one, least of all him, minds that the roses and the teddy bears thrown onto the ice when they have collapsed into each other's arms at the end are for her. It is his joy. When it's done well, it's a welcome sight in which both partners are fulfilled in themselves and delighted in the other. See, God's design is a beautiful thing. God designed marriage in his infinite wisdom and has given us instructions for it in his infinite goodness. And embracing that design is an essential part of our witness to the world about the relationship between Christ and his church in the gospel.